Welcome to the Creation Podcast. I'm Christy Hardy. We asked you to send your creation, evolution, and Bible questions on social media. We received a terrific response. Today, ICR Research Associate Frank Sherwin is here to provide some answers. Welcome, Frank. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. One of our Facebook friends asks, what evidence points to design and a common designer? Well, what we see in the living world, at least, are creatures that are exquisitely designed to fit into their environmental niche. It really is quite amazing how some of them can adapt, and we would point to a creator as being the one who has programmed that creature through the DNA, the genetic material, to live in that particular environment. Now, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 that God's creation is not only seen, but it's clearly seen. And I think it's significant that even the evolutionary community looks at the various creatures, whether it's the tube worms at two and a half miles below the ocean or high altitude flying birds and everything in between as exquisitely designed. The difference is, of course, that the evolutionist points to natural selection, whatever that is, as being the reason for this design, whereas the creationist would say that God, the creator, through the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who has designed these creatures to move in and fill all the unique ecosystems in the world today. How can we know that designer is the God of the Bible and, more specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we are of a biblical worldview, and we understand that God was there in the beginning and has created the heavens and the earth, as it says in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Then we read in the book of John, chapter 1, in the beginning as well, referring to the Word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find this agreement between the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is the creator, and that creator is the Lord Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead who has created the heavens and the earth. I think it's interesting also in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, that the author says before we can get into, as it were, the great faith hall of fame of these Old Testament prophets, we should understand that God is the creator. Um, We also got a question from Thomas. Thomas asks, how can genetic entropy be used as an argument against evolution? Well, my good friend, Dr. John Sanford, a geneticist who has been trained in evolutionary naturalism throughout his life, looks at the biblical model, in particular, the area of genetics as being far superior than the evolutionary model. Dr. Sanford has done some groundbreaking work looking at the accumulation of mutations that we find within, for example, the human population. I think it's significant that even the evolutionists use the phrase genetic load or genetic burden, implying a dragging down of a species, whether it's a person or any other group of animals or plants for that matter, and that we find that we have an accumulation of these mutations. Dr. Sanford has just done an incredible job showing that about 600 generations is all that we can accumulate in terms of mutations before we start heading downhill genetically in a hurry. As a matter of fact, we already have a significant amount of our genome that has accumulated these genetic mistakes. And so Dr. Sanford has quite rightly used the phrase genetic entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder, and we are becoming more and more disordered as time goes on, not better and better. Jamie said, my boys want to know why we don't find human bones in lower rock layers. 
What is ICR's position on this subject? When it comes to the fact of human fossils that are not found in the lower layers of rock, there are two reasons that we believe are efficient for describing this lack of fossils. The first is biblical, and that is that God judges planet with a worldwide flood. He was very, very efficient in judging man because man was sinful and the earth was filled with violence as it's described in the book of Genesis. So when we find that when God has judged man, he does it in a very, very efficient manner. The second reason is the scientific reason. We find that man is made of approximately 60% water, and so floodwaters, catastrophic floodwaters, which are very, very destructive, would do a very efficient job of destroying human bodies and basically completely destroying any evidence of human habitation due to the worldwide flood. And we have to remember that floodwaters carry a lot of debris, a lot of material with it, making the catastrophic flood even more destructive, keeping in mind that man was the recipient of God's judgment. So those are the two reasons why. However, with that said, we find that there are very tempting evidences here and there of human remains in the form of bones like metatarsal bones and others that are found in layers of rock that aren't supposed to be there. And so we are continuing to do this investigation and research, but I think both the biblical reason and the scientific reason would be good reasons to describe why we don't have human fossils. When you say that the bones are not supposed to be there, can you tell us more about why? Why aren't those bones supposed to be where they've been found? When we talk about the sedimentary rock layers that are laid down by the Genesis flood, the evolutionists, of course, have their naturalistic explanation that spans millions and millions of years. They interpret the sedimentary rock layers in the form of the theory of evolution, of slow and gradual evolution of quote-unquote simple forms of life into more complex forms of life. And so as you go up these sedimentary rock units, you should only find certain kinds of animals and not others. However, this has been called into question repeatedly in the past 30 to 40 years as out-of-place fossils have been found in rock layers that are not supposed to be there. This is certainly true with some of these very tempting evidences of human remains that have been found in rock layers way, way before the theory of evolution says people should evolve. Mandy wants to know, how can we teach our kids that we are created by a designer and not a mistake of evolution? Well, when you look at what theory of evolution says, it uses really two things, time and chance. Nothing but vast, vast periods of time and nothing more than a cosmic roll of the dice, as it were, that things just happen to work that way. There's no creator. There's no designer just chance in the form of genetic mutations and such. Well, this is not very satisfying when we look at the living world and we see the extreme complexity of the living world. This is why we say in Creation Science Circle that there's no such thing as simple life. We like to say, if it's living, it's complex. We think of the simplest bacterium ever, which is called Mycoplasma hominis, H39. Mycoplasmas are very, very, quote-unquote, basic bacteria, but certainly there's nothing simple about them and the various biochemical processes that are occurring within them. So in that example, there's really no difference between a bacterium, a tiny bacterial cell, and a blue whale. The only difference is the size. So when we look at the Word of God and we see that God is the Creator, He has created plants and animals and people, and He has done so with this foresight and with this knowledge that He has making things 
living and very, very sophisticated and complex. As a matter of fact, it's difficult to define what life is. We could only use John 14, 6 as a guide when it says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so whatever life is, and again, it's difficult to explain, the Lord Jesus Christ is the author, the giver, and sustainer of life. We'll hear more from Frank Sherwin in just a moment. But first, let me tell you about a helpful little book. ICR just published a quick reference guide called Creation Q&A, answers to 32 big questions about the Bible and evolution. Read Creation Q&A to discover top-notch research that confirms the Bible. Think evolution is a fact? After just a few pages, you may start thinking differently. Visit icr.org store to get your copy today. Did you know ICR offers another podcast series? It's time to add science, scripture, and salvation to your playlist. You'll hear short presentations from ICR's science and Bible experts. If you can't attend our live events, science, scripture, and salvation is the next best thing. Visit icr.org podcasts for more information. Now, let's get back to your questions. Frank, what should we tell kids when scientists say millions of years ago, or T-Rex had feathers like a chicken. It's interesting. First of all, I'll take the T-Rex with feathers. Now scientists, secular scientists, are doing a backtrack and admitting that when we find T-Rex skin, and we're finding skin imprints quite regularly now, which, by the way, points to a worldwide flood as they are rapidly and catastrophically buried, the skin of T-Rex is free of feathers. And so to say a feathered T-Rex, although it was popular several years ago, now it's not. Now T-Rex is back to being a smooth-skinned dinosaur. When it comes to secular scientists maintaining that the Earth is many millions of years old, we should keep in mind that, first of all, that does not line up with the Word of God. So if we're Christians, we should go to the Bible first and get our answers from the Bible and then let science catch up. The Bible says that the Earth is only thousands of years old. I like to give the analogy of a person stuck on a desert island, and all they have to read is the Bible. They would read through the Bible over and over again, and they would never come to the conclusion that this planet was 4.6 billion years old. Reading, a simple reading of the Bible, leads one to conclude the earth is only thousands of years old. And now we're finding more and more scientific evidence that points to a young earth. Donna asks, why do scientists need to blame an asteroid for everything? Dinosaurs dead? Asteroid. Water on a planet? Asteroid. Moons? Asteroid. Can you explain that for us, Frank? Well, this is interesting because if it was 50 years ago, evolutionists, right down to the individual evolutionist, would never admit to a worldwide catastrophe. This philosophy called uniformitarianism was thoroughly locked in soon after Darwin, and everything must have been explained through slow, gradual, laborious processes spanning millions of years of time. But then in the late 70s and early 80s, a team called the Alvarez Son and Father came up with the idea that maybe a catastrophic meteoritic impact 
in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico set up just an incredible destructive force in terms of this meteoritic impact, which caused worldwide destruction and extinction, for example, of the dinosaurs. Now, all of a sudden, we find that evolutionists are agreeing with the Bible. The Bible talks a worldwide catastrophe in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and now the evolutionists are admitting to a worldwide catastrophe. And so this is very, very interesting that they would agree with what the Bible says without, of course, reading the Bible. The same thing goes with the worldwide flood. Time was just a couple of decades ago. No evolutionists believe in a worldwide flood. And now there are dozens of references by secular evolutionists that admit, due to the physical evidence, that this planet was covered with water. And so at one time they were talking about a meteoritic impact, but now they understand maybe that's too simplistic and there are other extraneous explanations for processes that we see going around the world today. Dana's asking, what evidence points to the humanity of Neanderthals? Recently, the evolutionists have been looking at the Neanderthals and realizing just that they were 100% human, that everything about Neanderthals were human in appearance and makeup, all the way down to the various kinds of traits and items that we see within the fossilized bones of the Neanderthals. They have been able to take out some DNA, from what I understand, from the bones of Neanderthals and actually trace individuals from this DNA sample of Neanderthal. And so, as we like to say, if you took a Neanderthal skeleton and put hair and flesh on the individual, put a business suit on them, that that individual would go completely unnoticed because Neanderthals were 100% human being. Now, sometimes evolutionists say Neanderthals had a heavy brow ridge. But that's also true with various people groups around the world. There's a people alive today, groups of people, that have heavy brow ridges. So that's not a measurement of quote-unquote human evolution. So the bottom line is Neanderthals were 100% human as a group. They became extinct, but there was nothing evolutionary that would make a connection to them with lower forms of life. Neanderthals were human. Marcelina wants to know, where can we find documents and or evidences to refute evolutionary belief? Well, the best area to look at besides the Word of God that talks about how we have been created in God's image, Genesis chapter 2, and that God has created each plant and animal after their kind. He said that 10 times in Genesis chapter 1. I would suggest going to www.icr.org, and we have lots and lots of information in terms of video clips and DVDs, books, where we can help people who have genuine questions about origins to know why they believe what they believe, as the Apostle Peter says. And one of the ministries of ICRs is to help people with their apologia, their apologetic, knowing why they believe what they believe when it comes not only to this issue of origins, but also their destiny as well. Frank, what evidence do we have for creation from the really big to the really small? Well, I always like to talk about Earth and the Moon and how the Earth and the Moon interact in such a way that we have the incredible meteorological conditions in terms of weather patterns, but also for the tides that occur twice a day. That is all due to the moon, of course, the moon rotating the Earth and giving us the lunar calendar, as it were, every month. But then the moon, as it rotates around the Earth, also the Earth-moon as a binary system is going around the sun every 365 days. 
So what's really amazing is how God has created the moon to go around the earth and the earth and the moon together going around the sun in such exquisite detail and complexity. This hasn't even been lost to the evolutionary community, where two atheists in the early 2000s wrote a very fascinating book called Who Built the Moon? Now, they didn't have any kind of theological axe to grind. They understood that the moon is so sophisticated and so complex, somebody must have built it. Well, that's the earth and the moon, as big as they are. But then we look at the very, very small. We're made of trillions of cells. Within each one of these trillions of cells, we have a nucleus that contains DNA. We all learned that from junior high and high school. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is that the DNA is being corrupted by cosmic rays on a daily basis. The DNA experiences something called lesions, and even on occasion, mutations. But God in his infinite wisdom has designed tiny protein machines that you really can't even see, even with an electron microscope, which magnifies things thousands of times. And these tiny protein machines are going up and down the DNA, the spiral helix molecule of the DNA, looking for these lesions, looking for these mistakes, and repairing them through a process that we call in biology dehydration synthesis. That's so amazing that God in his foreknowledge would design the human body from the beginning to have these special machines that would repair these various problems on the DNA. So from the very big to the very small, we see God's creative hand. One last question. Why do you think it matters so much to discuss these topics? Well, we shouldn't be afraid of science, keeping in mind that God is the creator of everything, which means he created the world and the way that we investigate and research the world. So we like to say at ICR that all science is creation science, and that all truth is God's truth, and that science is a search for truth. And so we, as researchers who appeal to the creator instead of the creation, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we as individuals that have been trained in science like to think God's thoughts after him. And we like to say, like the founder of ICR, the late Henry Morris, who said, where you came from is at least as important as to where you're going. We keep that in mind as we attempt to think God's thoughts after him and give him the glory for the discoveries that we make on this young Earth. Frank, thank you for joining us on the Creation Podcast today. You've shown how multiple fields of science agree with biblical creation. And thank you, podcast listeners, for submitting the questions that have been on your hearts and minds. I hope today's episode has given you answers that build your faith and equip you to share the truth with others. If you have any questions you'd like ICR to answer on future episodes, send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ICR science. Remember to subscribe to the Creation Podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. Join ICR next time for another episode of the Creation Podcast.